Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, well, today's a little different. Today's a little, little special episode. I want to try something new. This is basically a design diary uh, through a podcast in podcast form. You know, I'm a big fan of design diaries. I, I like writing, you know, the kind of the process of a game coming to life. I love reading design diaries and seeing how other game designers think, how they work, how they operate, how, you know, how the game changed through playtesting and development and different choices that they made and why they made those choices. I think if you want to become a better designer, one of the best ways to do it is to read design diaries, especially from people who are very, very good at game design, whether it's Jamie Stegmeier or, or J.B. Howell, I think has got some good ones up. Now, there's just all sorts of blogs and places on BGG and different different things like that where you can just read about the process of game design. It's almost like watching film. If you're if you're into sports, you know, you watch film on the other team and you figure, figure out how they do things, why they do it certain ways. And then you try to, you know, take what's what's best and emulate it and make yourself better. And so I think that's one one of the best things about design diaries. And it's just kind of cool to see how games come to life, kind of the making of, you know, VH1 behind the music for those that remember that way back when. And so this podcast, I just want to do a design diary for one of my games. It's actually actually a series of games called Hunted. And so in this first part, I want to talk about kind of how the game came to be, the playtesting process, development, different things, kind of the ins and outs of it. And then in, in a minute, I'm going to interview the graphic designer, and we're going to talk about his choices and the reason he did certain things and kind of his process. And then we're also going to talk to the artist and get his perspective on things and why he made certain choices for the art and for the colors and design and that kind of stuff. And so hopefully this episode will be kind of helpful to you in maybe figuring some things out, especially if you're working on a solo game or a one or two player game or a solo mode for your game. That's kind of the main, the heart of this. Or if you just want to hear about how the game came to be as I've worked on it for this last while and just kind of bringing it to life. Now, I don't want this to seem like an infomercial or, you know, I'm just kind of getting up here and, and marketing and just advertising my game. I don't want it to be that way. Uh, I would love for you to check it out, obviously, but I want it to be much, much deeper than just some kind of HSN, QVC, infomercial style thing. So hopefully you get a lot out of this. And if it works out well, if people enjoy it, then hopefully I can do more of these design diary podcasts down the road. I've got a lot of games working on right now, several coming to Kickstarter next year, things I'm really excited about. And so hopefully this uh, this works out well, but let's just jump into it. So the series of games is called Hunted, and the idea is that you are typically alone. These are made to be solo games, although I'll talk about the uh, the two-player option in just a little bit. But they're made to be played alone, and the themes are all about you being on the run, you trying to get away, you trying to save the day or get out of the, the building before it explodes or you know fix everything before the bad guys win, that kind of thing. But it's it kind of takes its original inspiration from 80s and 90s action movies where you kind of have this this one character, this one person against the world, against the universe, against everything. And so the series of games is going to have a different theme every game and then different mechanisms and kind of how the game plays. But then there's the, the same core card play mechanisms. So all these games are card games and they've got tokens and dice and, and different things depending on the, the game. But it's mainly cards and card manipulation and multi-use cards and using these cards to make combos and, and do different things. And it's it's a push-your-luck game. All the games in the series will be push-your-luck, where you are on the run, constantly having to manage your resources as far as mainly your time and your health, at least so far. There's some other games I'm working on that's a little bit different. But for right now, time and health are the main two resources you got. You got to manage. And if you run out of time, you're dead. If you run out of health, obviously, you're dead. 
that's the two ways to lose. And then you have an objective that you're trying to accomplish in each game before time runs out, before you, you get got, so to speak, before, uh, in this case, the, these first two games before aliens get you or before the terrorists get you. And so these first two games, one is called Kobayashi Tower. And that one, you're just a guy that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. You, you came to visit your wife at work. She works in this big skyscraper and just happened to get taken over by terrorists. And you were there visiting. It's her birthday. You were bringing her some, just a box of chocolates. And then all hell broke loose. Uh, your wife was taken amongst other people there as hostages. And, and luckily, you've got some military training, some military background. And so you and your trusty handgun are going to try to work through the tower, going through the different locations, beating up bad guys, taking out terrorists, ultimately getting to the roof, taking out the head guy, and rescuing your wife. And it's a dice rolling game. It's, it's dice based. Lots of luck and, and trying to mitigate dice and lots of cards and items that allow you to change dice and manipulate things and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a luck based game. I, I know a lot of people are really into dice games, especially for solo games. And so I thought this would be a really good mechanism to use for, for this one. Then the other game is called Mining Colony 415, in which you were on your spaceship flying back to Earth after a long mission, and you were roused from your hypersleep by a distress beacon, and it was coming from a mining colony out in the middle of space. And so you and your, your crew, you land on the planet, land in the colony, and very soon after figure out that this entire place has been taken over by bloodthirsty aliens who are trying to eat your face off. And so now you have to rush back to your spaceship. The self-destruct mechanism for the colony has been activated and you got to get back to your ship to get off of the planet before everything explodes all the while on the run from aliens. So as you can probably tell, these games take a lot of inspiration from different movies in the 80s and 90s. Lots of you know stories from that era and, and now. There's lots of, you know, every story just kind of repeats itself, especially in Hollywood. But I wanted every game in the series to feel very different. You know, even though it's got the same card play mechanism, and I'll explain that in just a minute, I wanted it to feel different. It'd be a new experience, a different experience coming through both through the theme and kind of how the cards play off of each other and how different things happen uh, depending on what the theme is and also the artwork and kind of how everything looks. And so every game in the series will have a different color, right? So Kobayashi Tower is mainly blue. Mining Colony 415 is mainly red. So every, you know, you can kind of see a difference in, in the art style. Although style is kind of the same, it's really just the colors and how every, everything's laid out. It's, it's really cool. I'm really impressed with what Jorge, the artist, has, has come up with. And uh, i got his interview coming up in a minute. He'll talk through his design choices. But this series of games really started off uh, way back when, I guess this was before the summer, when a supplement for ICRPG, Index Card RPG, which I'm a big fan of. It's a, a tabletop role-playing system. And the guy that created that system, Mr. Hankerin Furnell, came out with a supplement, a module for the, for the system that's called Xeno Dead Zone which is about, you know, space marines fighting off aliens. And it was this really cool, really deadly way to play the core game. And I was like, that's really cool. And the art was really fun. And it was it was white, black, and red. And I thought, oh, man, it's really cool. And so that kind of was the initial spark of like, man, there, there just needs to be like more alien games out there. And I know Nemesis is, is out and it's amazing. I hadn't played it yet, but it, it looks awesome. There's so much going on. It's just a massive game, but just really cool. It's getting really good reviews. I was like, you know, there needs to be some like a really cool alien game and like a solo game. That'd be fun where you're, you're, it's you or nothing. You know, you're the one that's on the run. You're, you're trying to take out these aliens, trying to save the day, trying to rescue your crewmates, trying to get back to the ship before it all explodes. That'd be, that'd be a really cool thing. And that idea just kind of festered for a while and just kind of bounced around in my, my brain. And then I'd also, I've, I've got this notebook where I've written down just tons of different ideas, both theme ideas and then also lots and lots of mechanism ideas where I will see a, a mechanism or a way certain cards work or components work or worker placement areas work and different things. And I'll just write down kind of my interpretation of it. I'll just write it down as an idea of like one day down the road. It'd be really cool to use this mechanism in a game one day down the road. And there's been lots of times in my design journey where I will get to a roadblock, a kind of a 
you know, stopping point and not really knowing what to do next or how to accomplish a goal or how to fix a problem with the design. And I'll just go back to this notebook and I'll just start going through these different mechanism ideas and seeing if anything jumps out at me. And there's been several games where I, I didn't know what to do, didn't know how to fix a problem. And then I've gone through that notebook and the, the perfect idea has jumped out and I've tried it and it's worked and, and I've been able to move on with the game design and, and finish it. And that's kind of what happened here. I was kind of thinking through, oh, it'd be cool to have a one player, you know, solo mode game where you're on the run versus aliens and went to this notebook. And I, I remembered, I can't, I can't remember the name of the game, but a long time ago, I saw this review, a, a Dice Tower review for a game that was a push your luck game about trading, of course, trading the Mediterranean or something like that. I think it had pirates and different things. Uh, and it had a really cool card play mechanism where the way the cards worked off of each other and, it, and you would turn cards over in this kind of central row and you had this big deck of cards and and it's pushing your luck and you're trying to not get too many of a certain type of card or otherwise you bust, but then you want enough cards out there to be able to make combos and get resources and things like that. And I was like, oh, that's a really cool system, a really cool mechanism, but the game was kind of awful. Like it got really bad reviews. It wasn't good. It didn't look fun just from the review I saw with, with Tom Vassell. I was like, man, that's such a cool mechanism. It needs to be in a better game. There just needs to be a, the right game for it. And I remember at the time thinking, man, it'd be kind of cool to have that as a solo style game as a solo mechanism that way people aren't sitting there just waiting for you to to do your turn you know because in that game it was multi multiplayer and so while you're pushing your luck everybody else is just staring just waiting to do the same thing i was like man that needs to be a, that needs to be a single player game because that's it's not fun just sit there waiting and watching and not having anything to do and so i kind of i wrote that down and i just packed it away for for a later date and these two ideas just ran into each other and it just all made sense and at the time i was working on dexterity stuff i, I was just coming off the final foot tier and working on that and loving the dexterity elements in that. I've been working on a football game. It's got some cool dexterity elements as well. And so dexterity just kind of stays on my mind. I thought well, it'd be cool to have a, a dexterity-based solo game. Is that is that a thing? So a dexterity-based solo game about killing aliens. That just sounded fun to me. Uh, I didn't know if it was a product or marketable, but I knew it sounded fun to at least put together and play on my own. So I started working on that and creating the cards and different weapons and items and alien cards and different things. And then I had one of the smaller boxes from the Game Crafter. And so I took kind of one of their jumbo cards and I printed off this alien looking creature thing and I drew a red circle in Sharpie and just put that card inside the box. And then I would throw tokens. So I think I tried dice at first where I throw dice and what you rolled and land it. You have to land it inside that red circle for, for it to be a hit. And I was like, oh, the dice are okay. Well, let's try tokens. So I started throwing tokens and wooden discs and tried different things to see kind of what would fly best and what would land and you know what felt satisfying. And so that became the combat system where you have to hit an alien. So if you're fighting one alien, you got to get one hit inside the red circle. If you're fighting three aliens, you got to get three hits and you got to toss your tokens in there. So this is dexterity based thing. It's not really a dexterity game. It just kind of has a dexterity element mechanism. And what I loved about it was that there wasn't any luck. Like I was going to live or die. I was going to kill aliens or they were going to kill me based on my ability to, to shoot them based on my ability to throw tokens into this box. And so I loved that there was really not much luck in the game. There's luck in how the cards come out. But it's really skill-based in me being able to take care of business, take out the aliens. And so I was having a lot of fun with that. And I was staying with some friends over the summer, and I had the game with me. And very good friends that, that play games, play all sorts of games. They're the people that I can always count on when I go home for the summer that they're going to have the best games, all the new games, and we can just play a different you know, hot, hot games all summer. And that's my friend Lindsay. Big shout-out to her. She was amazing at help in the opening playtest after I play tested it, you know, a bunch by myself, I wanted someone else to see it and see if it was any good. Because I thought it was fun, but you, know, you never know until somebody else plays it. And she hates dexterity games. Like she hates them. She's not very good at them. She doesn't enjoy them. And so I knew it was going to be a stretch. I said, Hey, Lindsay, you know, you got a minute. You mind playing this game? It only takes about 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. 
And so she said, yeah, sure, absolutely. And so we put it out there and she started playing. I'm just watching, I'm taking notes and, you know, trying to make the game better. And and she got done. I don't know if she won or lost the first one, uh, but we got done. And she looked at me and she said, I love this. I want to play it again. And I was like, what? Like you hate dexterity. She's like, I know it's different. This is not a normal dexterity game. I'm not like stacking things or, you know, it's nothing based on my quickness or reflexes. This is, this is just me being able to throw tokens. I, I had a lot of fun. And there were several times over the summer where I would come home and it was her, it was her house. I was saying when uh, her husband's one of my best friends growing up. And so, you know, we've been friends for forever. I went to college together, that kind of thing. And so I would come back to the house sometimes and I would walk into their dining room. They've got this big, nice gaming table and she'd be sitting there playing it <laughs> without me even being there. And so I was like, okay, I think this game has legs. I think this game could be something. And I think there's something valuable to learn from that. And that if you have a game and, and your friends play it and they and they tell you they like it, they tell you it's good, that, that's, that's nice. But do they ask you to play it again? Because that's, that's really where the truth comes out. If they really want to take their time again without you asking them, and they say, hey, where, what about that game? How's that game? Can we play it? I think that, that should be a, a good indicator that maybe your game is going pretty well. Like the design is pretty good. And maybe you want to start pursuing it a little bit further. Maybe maybe this is the kind of game that is worth publishing, maybe turning into a product. Not for sure, necessarily, but at least something to be thinking about as far as that direction goes. And so I thought, okay, this, this is pretty cool. This might be something that can turn into, you know, something bigger. And so originally I thought, well, I'll just start pitching it to publishers. And so I really started thinking, okay, who has certain licenses, you know, that they can kind of put the license on this thing. And so I reached out to some, didn't really get much feedback, didn't get any response from uh, some people as far as meetings. And I took it to Dice Tower Con and a good friend of mine was there. He was working a booth and I asked him, I said, Hey man, you got, you know, 20 minutes to, to check out this game that we're working on. And, you know, he, a little bit later in the, in the show, he said, hey, what, tell, you know, show me that game. We sat down at a table and we started playing. And I said, we, he, <laughs> solo game. Uh, he started playing. I started watching. And we, he's going through and he's playing and he's looking and he's nodding his head. And he's like, okay, yeah, I see how. And he's, you know, throwing the, the tokens and killing aliens, that kind of thing. And he gets to the end. He, he won his first game. I was, super, I was super surprised. Like, I just upped the difficulty level a ton. And he won the first game he played. And I was like, okay, I got I to gotta up the difficulty level more. But he won the game and he, he looked up at me and he said, I want it. I want, I want to publish this. Like, how, can I publish this? And I looked at him and like, I hadn't really thought about that response. I had, I was not prepared for that response. I, he was just a friend. He's in publishing. And so I trust his opinion. You know, he wasn't going to lie to me or anything. And I was like, Oh, I don't know. And, you know, I initially wanted someone to publish it, but it was that weird moment of realizing that maybe the game is better than I thought. And so maybe I want to just publish it myself, you know? And I don't know if you've ever been in that scenario. I don't know if you've run Kickstarters or whatever, but you kind of have this, moment sometimes where you go, wow, what do, what do I do? Do I want someone to publish this or do I want to just do this myself? Because it, it could be something special, something bigger. Cause at the time I was thinking, okay, how do I go full time? What does that look like? Well, to go full time in the gaming industry, you're probably going to have to be in publishing. There are very, very, very few designers that can be full time. You, you just have to have an incredible output of game designs and you have to have a lot of hits and you have to have a lot of evergreen games. Otherwise you're going to have to publish 10 games a year, you know, at least six, six, seven, eight, and so I started thinking, maybe this is my one of my ways in to being able to go full time is, is publishing this. And what if it could be a series? What, could, what if what if it could be more than just this one game? What if there could be other themes, other mechanisms, other ways that the game plays, other modules, expansion, different things? I started thinking through that. And that's kind of where the, the seeds started growing as far as running on Kickstarter and doing it myself. It's like, okay, if he is this excited about it as a publisher and as a person that I really trust and a person has been in the industry for a long time, then maybe this is something bigger. Maybe this can be more special than, than I realized. And so I went back home, back to Atlanta and just kept working on it, kept working on it and realized, you know, a lot of people don't like dexterity. 
And so what if I kind of redo some things, maybe do a different theme? Maybe originally I was just going to offer dexterity in the box and also dice rolling in the box. So it's a game about fighting aliens and, and running around and you know, blowing stuff up, but it's dexterity if you want dexterity and it's dice if you want dice. So it was kind of both mechanisms in one box. But the more I thought about it, I was like, well, if this is going to be a series, it, maybe it makes a lot more sense for every game in the series just to have a different combat mechanism, different event mechanism, different resolution mechanism. And so maybe the alien one is the dexterity one. And maybe, okay, what if what's it like to come up with one for dice rolling? And that's where the idea for the, you know fighting terrorists and rescuing your wife and working your way through a skyscraper, that's where that idea came from. It, it's going to be the dice one. And so no matter which mechanism you like, or maybe you like both, you could do either or. And then it provides two totally different experiences as well, because you have luck versus skill. You have dice versus dexterity, and then all the really cool things that you can do with theming and, and how the cards play off each other. And so I'll give you give some examples. When you're fighting aliens, you know, their their goal is to turn you into a host. They, they want to take you. They don't want to necessarily eat you right now. They want to implant one of their little buddies that then grows inside your belly or inside your heart and chest, whatever, and then pops out and then becomes another one of them. That's what they want. And so in that game, if you aren't able to rescue any of your crew, so you you know you have crew cards that come out of the deck from time to time, and if you're not able to rescue them, if they ever get discarded for any reason whatsoever, then the, the aliens got them. They, they scooped them up, and they've turned them into hosts. And so anytime a crew card is discarded for any reason whatsoever, instead of putting it in the discard pile, you remove it from the game, and you take one of the alien cards, there's a few alien extra alien cards, and you, you shuffle it into the deck somewhere. So that crew member, you know, Bob, Steve, Larry, whoever it is, that person has now turned into an alien that wants to get you. So anytime a crew member comes up in the in the row, of, the main row of cards, you're, it's a little more tense. You're like, oh, I need to get them because I don't want them to eat my face off. You know, and you're thinking, gosh, I want to save you, Bob. You know, and so it's a little bit different. Now, terrorists, on the other hand, they don't really do that. They don't snatch up people to then turn them into another terrorist. You know, it's not, you know, a little baby terrorist that pops up. <laughs> However, terrorists, they drop cool stuff. So whenever you defeat a terrorist, you get to you get to draw off the top of the deck, and if you find an item or a weapon or anything like that, you get to put it directly in your inventory. Because you know what's the point of taking out a bad guy if you're not going to go through his pockets and see if he's got any cool stuff? Whereas aliens don't really have pockets, and so there's lots of different little nuances to the games that, that are different, provide different experiences, different rules here and there. But at the same time, it's it's the common core of how the cards play off each other. Let me talk about that for a second. So the way the cards work, you have three different zones on the card. So you know, think of a normal poker size card. You have the, the top left, which has all sorts of icons. And that, those icons are basically your currency. So you've got movement, you've got search, you've got keys you can find, and you've also got noise. I'll talk about noise in a second. And so in the top left is your, your currency. You know, you can basically discard a card to take on that currency. So if a card has a movement icon, you can discard it from the row. And now you have a movement icon a movement currency that you can spend on another card. And every card in the bottom right has the cost. So if I discard a card with movement, I can now buy a card that costs one movement. So maybe it's a hallway, a corridor, maybe it's trying to move you know, to a different location. Maybe it's some kind of item I can discard search icons for. And so you're, you're always trying to balance out, okay, do I use this card for its icons? Or do I want to use this card for its ability or as a weapon, an item, and maybe it's a health kit. I've got full health, so I'm going to discard the health kit, use its items to buy this other thing. Or I've got one health, so I need to discard these other cards and get some health back. So the tension comes in how do you play off the cards? How do they combo together? But ultimately, you're trying to get corridors, hallways, and doors to open up locations. You have to move through the location deck trying to get to the end, trying to save the day, trying to get to the roof and destroy the main terrorist trying to get back to your spaceship and defeat the alien queen and, and escape before everything blows up. So ultimately you're trying to make your way through this location deck, but it's that balance of 
well, do I use this icon now to, to go to another location or do I use the location card? Do I use the, the hallway, trade that in for its icon to give me a grenade or to give me some extra ammo, to give me some kind of item that I can use. And so you're always having to make those tense choices of, do I do this now? Do I wait? Do this other thing? What am I going to do in this moment? All while pushing your luck because you never know what's going to come out next. So the noise icons, they work in that the bad guys are activated by two noise icons, two or more. And so certain cards, not every card, but a lot of cards have noise icons. And if there's ever two of those icons in the row and then a bad guy shows up, a bad guy card, then it attacks you and you go into combat and you lose all the other cards. So if that ever happens, you lose every other card in the row. You've pushed your luck too far and now you lose access to all those other cards. And now you have to take on this person or this thing that's trying to kill you. So there's always that tension of, do I draw one more? Do I, do I go for it? Do I try to find this key that's going to open this door or do I just wait? Cause you can always hide. And if you hide, it costs you time, costs you one time unit, but you're able to discard the entire row. And so if you have one terrorist out there and one noise icon, you're thinking, Ooh, if I draw another card and it's noise, then it's going to attack me. What do I want to do? So maybe I'm just going to hide. Maybe I'm going to lay low for a little bit. I'm going to spend a little time, hop in this closet, hop in this air duct, whatever, Use some time, and but get rid of all these cards, and, and we'll start again. We'll try again in just a minute. So it's always that tension, and, and you know, you, you feel like you're alone. You feel like you're by yourself, and, and you against the world, and how am I going to save the day, and that kind of thing. And so it's been cool to really craft this experience that I want. Because ultimately, that's, that's kind of where it started. I want the experience of me against the world, me against impossible odds, you know, as a, as a solo game. But I guess the question is, why, why design a solo game? So personally, I had a few reasons. One, I live in Honduras, where I don't have a ton of access to a lot of people. It's not very many gaming conventions down this way. Maybe you're in the in the same boat where you're just not a lot around you, or maybe you work all the time and you just don't have time or you've got responsibilities, whatever it is. And so designing solo games actually made a lot of sense just from my personal situation of just a lot going on, working a lot of jobs and not having access to a lot of people. And so it's been fun just to work on a lot of solo games because I don't need anybody else. I can sit there and play test it by myself. I can play test over and over and over again and don't have to worry about wasting anybody else's time but my own. And so there's a lot of advantages to designing solo games. Now, they're not easy to design by any stretch. And you have to balance things. You can't rely on other players to balance the game out for you. You know, if you runaway leader issues, it's kind of like, well, this, this isn't fun. If I'm just a runaway leader, this game's too easy. So you have to balance the difficulty level because people that want to play solo games, they want them to be hard. They don't want to win every time. You know, most people don't even want to win half the time. They want it to be difficult. If you look at the solo games out there or the games that you can play solo, at least have a cool solo mode, the majority of the ones that people really love are very, very difficult. You have to earn the win. You have to really fight for it. You have to work for it. The dice have to be in your favor, whatever it is. But people want them to be hard. And so you have to kind of think through, how am I going to make this game challenging, but at the same time, not just overly punishing where it's not fun. And so it's just a lot to think about as that goes. You have to create a system that really works by itself and, and on its own. So, And if you've ever designed a cooperative game, it's kind of in that same category, but now you don't have other players to help you out or trade you cards or, you know, do different actions. You just have that one player. But this is also something to think a lot about if you're, even if you are designing multiplayer games, is that more and more people want a solo mode. More and more the, the audience is growing. The community of solo gamers is becoming massive. It's something I've found out as I've been involved of these last several months in the Facebook groups and just the solo uh, gaming groups online is that there there's a lot of people. I mean, just a ton of people that only play solo for whatever reason or play a lot of solo games because, you know, they got a lot going on. And so more and more people want solo mode as far as their, you know, multiplayer games. They want it to be one to four players, not just two to four. And so if you're designing multiplayer games, something really to think about because it's going to open up your audience even more. But you can't just tack it on. That's another thing that solo gamers I've, I've learned are very, very 
conscious of, very skeptical, especially like a Kickstarter where they're like, you know, if we reach this dollar amount, we'll add a solo mode. It's like, well, did, are you just doing that for extra money? Are you just taking advantage of me? <laughs> and they, they're real skeptical, which makes sense. A lot of solo modes are just tacked on. And so something to really think about is how can you take your multiplayer game, your two to four, two to five, two to 12 player game and turn it into a, a one player game and have a similar experience. It doesn't have to be the same, but at least something similar where if somebody plays it by themselves, they still feel like they've played your game and not just kind of some added on tacked on kind of way to play it, but maybe not really. And so I would definitely encourage you if you've never thought about designing solo games, give it a shot, you know, go for it. Uh, just, just at least get some note cards out and some dice and, and, you know, make some things and just, Start pushing cardboard around and seeing how it works because the better you get at, at understanding how a solo game works, how it's made, you know, how it can appeal to people, the more you're going to be able to make solo modes for your multiplayer games, and which is going to open up the audience even more. More and more publishers are, are wanting one to four player games, not just two to four, just because they know that it's going to help them get more sales and it's going to make your game a better product overall. And speaking of adding an extra mode, so with, with a game that these hundred games I've been working on, uh, as it turns out, a lot of people wanted a two-player mode. And that's not something I had really thought a lot about uh, as far as adding a way to play it with two players. So it was kind of the opposite of the normal. You know, normally you have a multiplayer game. People are like, we want solo mode. This one's like, oh, here's a solo game. It's like, we want multiplayer mode. It's like, okay, let's see how this works. Uh, now, luckily, the next game in the series is a two-player game. Uh, it uses the same core card mechanism, but it's very different in how the game plays because it's made for two players and you're able to pass cards back and forth and do different things and help each other and work, you know, that kind of thing. And so luckily I'd already had a bunch of ideas and, and different things that have been working for that game that I could just kind of translate over and turn these solo games into two-player experiences without losing the experience, without losing the, the fun, kind of keeping it together. You feel like you're on a team. You're not just, you know, both playing one character. Uh, you're not both playing solitary mode, but then you're looking at each other or something like that. And you really feel like you're on the same team, you know, running through the building or running through the space colony. And so luckily I was already working on that other game and it made it a, a lot easier, made that transition much smoother than it would have been. It didn't take long at all to really figure out how to translate the one player mode into a two player situation. And I'm really excited for the next game in the series. Honestly, it, it's very, very different. It is not uh, blowing stuff up. It's not aliens or, or terrorists or anything like that. It, it's much, much uh, more interesting than that. And it's actually came from playtesting uh, with my wife. I had her play both both games and just get her opinion because you know, I really trust her. And, and she's very, very different than maybe the target audience. So I want to kind of see how she played the game and if, if she'd enjoyed them. And she liked them well enough. Uh, they weren't really her thing, but she liked the way the game played and, and she had fun doing it. But I remember later on, I guess it was the first time she ever played. We played through both. And later on that, that night, she said, why has it always got to be about blowing stuff up and shooting things and you know, guns and grenades and stuff? I'm like, well, you know, that's a good point. What would you what would you have me design? And she said, I don't know. It needs to be something like romantic. <laughs> can, can you make a game like this? You know, very similar game, but you're like falling in love or something like that. And I was like, well, I mean, well, I hadn't thought about that at all, honestly. And I more I pondered it. I thought, you know, what if I made a pride and prejudice game? That could be interesting. That could be fun. That could be cool. Here's the only problem. I don't know crap about Pride and Prejudice, but my wife does. She knows everything about Pride and Prejudice. She loves That's her favorite story of all time. Her favorite movie. Absolutely. So I approached her that day. I was like, what about this game, but Pride and Prejudice? And she just lit up. She's like, yes, yes, do, do that. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to need your help. <laughs> uh, this is going to have to be a co-design. And so we, we started working on this Pride and Prejudice game. Uh, so you've got aliens, you've got terrorists, and now you're going to have people trying to find spouses in you know old school English countryside. 
<laughs> the natural progression, I guess. And so it's it's a two-part game. Same core card play system, the way the cards combo off each other, but this is very, very different. It's not dexterity. It's not going to be uh, dice-based, totally different systems. And it's been a lot of fun to put together. So I'm really excited for that game and just for what the potential is for this series of games, what the future holds for different kinds of games in the series. I'm working on several more. I've got uh, three other games in development right now that kind of use the same core concept and then have totally different themes, totally different systems, totally different feelings and experiences. And I'm just excited to hopefully see them come to life. You know, as this Kickstarter uh, hopefully does well, hopefully people will basically raise their hand and say, hey, we like this kind of thing. We want more of it. And I can do more down the road. But let's talk about some maybe some takeaways from my experience that maybe you can apply to your own game designing. I think one of them is don't try to be something you're not. Don't try to do more than you currently able. You know, I'm in a situation right now where I'm basically by myself. So I'm designing solo games. I'm designing two-player games that me and my wife can play because that's my current situation. Uh, and that's just kind of what works for me. I'm designing games right now that take 30 minutes or less to play because I don't have a lot of time. I'm working three jobs. I'm trying to get all this stuff done. You know, I got a lot of ministry stuff happening. It's, I got a lot going on. I got three kids, you know, it's just, it's just a lot. And so I don't have time to design a two hour game, a two hour, you know, experience this big, long drawn out worker placement game. That's super complicated and all these different systems working on each other. I would love to design those games. I don't have time right now. Uh, actually, let me, let me put that different way. That's not a priority for me right now. Uh, I, I probably could make some time if I slept even less uh, to do those, but that's, that's not a priority right now. I wanna, my priority is just make really good games and making quick games, 20, 30-minute games. That's, that's what I'm really focused on right now because that's, that's what my life is making available at the moment. So, you know, I know a lot of people, they, they send me emails talking about how, you know, they get these different struggles and complications and challenges and whatnot. I would say lean into your struggle as opposed to just fighting against it all the time. Lean into it. You know, my scenario is one or two player games. I'm going to lean into that. I'm not going to say, well, I wish I could design four player game. No, I'm going to lean into where I'm at right now and see what comes out and just try to become a better designer along the way. And hopefully down the road, time will open up, life will change a little bit, and I can design some of these longer, more drawn out games. But that's not right now. And so I'm not going to, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to design what I'm able to design at this moment. Also, I think it's important to constantly be pushing yourself. You know, if you've never designed a solo game, try it out. Give it a shot. It, it might turn out awful. It might turn out amazing. Like you don't know, but at the end of the day, you're still going to learn either way, whether it's great or whether it's terrible. You're going to learn some things about game design, about your own process, about how games work. Maybe you figure out how to design solo modes or at least get some more experience in that. You know, I had never designed a solo game up until this series. It's not something that I had put a lot of time and effort and energy to, into. I had designed some solo modes for games and being able to play a game with an AI or, you know, it becomes a, a single player experience out of a, a bigger game. But I never designed a one player only game. And I learned a ton and I'm still learning. I'm still growing, still figuring stuff out. And I have become a better designer because of this. You know, anytime you have to figure something out, something new, you have to grow, you're, you're going to become a better creative person. Whether it's, you know, if you're an artist and having to figure out how to use a different kind of paint how to use a different type of canvas, you know, painting on a different surface or something like that. You're going to have to grow. You're going to have to learn. You're going to become a better creative person through that. Or if you're a writer and you normally write fantasy, well, go out there and write a science fiction story. I mean, write, a, write, a, write a story about young people trying to fall in love in the British countryside. I don't know. But you're going to grow. You're going to figure things out. And so push yourself. Right? Push your limits. Try something you haven't thought about before. And then maybe another thing to take away from this is put yourself out there. Like you, you don't know what's going to happen until you, you kind of put yourself in a position to learn about it, to figure that out, whether it's uh, taking your game to, to a convention and having other people play it, uh, letting publishers play it, letting friends that normally hate this kind of game play it and just learning you know, from it, letting your spouse play it, you know, whatever it is. But put yourself out there because, again, that's how you're going to learn. That's how you're going to grow. If you just keep it all bottled up, you keep it all to yourself and just you know don't show other people and you're always afraid, 
you're, you're not going to grow. You're not going to learn. And, and maybe it does suck. Maybe it is the worst game they've ever played. Maybe, probably not. But maybe it's something really special. Maybe it's something that'll help you launch a Dagum company. Maybe it's something to help you launch your way into a at least part-time spot in the gaming industry to be able to do this on a bigger level. You don't know if you don't put yourself out there. And so take the risk, take the leap, take the jump. I know it's scary. I know it can be hard. I know a lot of us have that imposter syndrome where we feel like everything we make is crap and we're never going to be any good. And anytime someone says we're good, they're just saying it and they don't really mean it. I know we all struggle with those moments, but I just want to encourage you, put yourself out there, put yourself in a position to learn, to grow. Don't, don't think of it as pass fail. Don't think of it as success or failure. Think of it as opportunities to grow. And if it doesn't go well, at least you're learning. At least you're figuring out all the ways that don't work. But maybe, just maybe, you found something special that works really, really well. So anyway, that's what I got. Hopefully you found some of this stuff interesting. Hopefully it's kind of just fun to listen to, the, the design process, kind of how things came to be. I'm, I'm really hoping that you, you got something out of it that you can learn from, that you, you can take into your own game design process. But let's take a moment. Let's, let's go over to the graphic designer, Mr. Uh, Mr. Drew Corkle. And uh, he's a good friend of mine. He's done a phenomenal job on the game so far on, on a lot of my projects. Actually, he's, he's, he's just excellent. He's a good friend and he's a wonderful, wonderful graphic designer. So let's, uh, let's jump over and ask him some questions about his process. And then after that, we'll jump over and talk to Jorge about his art choices and kind of his process for creating the art for the game and just in general, how he you know goes through his process for art for anything. And so hopefully you'll get some really good information out of those quick interviews as well. And again, I don't want this just to be some big infomercial, but if you do want to check out the game, it's on Kickstarter right now to be up on Kickstarter through the first week of November. So if any of this sounds interesting to you, or if you just want to see it for yourself, kind of see how what it looks like, how it came to be, the art and the graphic design, and the way the game plays, things like that, go check it out on Kickstarter. If it looks like fun, back it. If it doesn't, feel free just to, you know, if you want to help me get the word out and, and try to you know spread the word through social media, I would greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate that. But anyway, let's jump over and talk to Drew. All right, so I'm here with Drew Corkill professional graphic designer. The graphic designer has worked on a ton of my projects. Uh, he and I have been working together for quite some time now. You've worked on my books. You've worked on several games. Uh, and you're working on the whole Hunted series of games. And it's been a pleasure to work with you, Drew. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Really glad you're here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's I've always wanted to be on your show, so this is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And we were talking just before. It's I'm looking forward to getting you on for a full show down the road, and we can just talk graphic design and, and like a lot of bigger, deeper concepts uh, than maybe we're going to go through here. But I, I wanted to bring you on just to talk through some of the design challenges you ran into with the graphic design and kind of the way you ways you overcame those obstacles, different things you saw. But mainly, it's to help uh, new designers or graphic designers out there understand. Here are some concepts. Here are some processes. Here are some things you can think about when creating the graphic design elements for a game, you know, not, not just be like, Hey, buy my game, but, uh, you know, to learn from the different things that we've been going through these last several months and kind of creating the graphic design. We've had lots of really interesting conversations of, you know, sometimes we get super excited about something and then it just doesn't work out at all for various reasons. And sometimes it's like, well, we'll try this. Oh, that works out really well. And so first of all, before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into gaming and graphic design and then graphic design for gaming? Like, who are you? Yeah, uh, so I'm Drew Corkill, um, professional UI UX designer currently as my profession, um, but I do graphic design um, on the side for freelance projects. Um, I had have my bachelor's degree in graphic design, uh, but also a master's degree in graphic information technology. So I sort of switched my career to focus uh, from graphic design into UI UX design. Um, and so that's sort of where I'm at with my career. I've been doing design work for professionally for about uh, 11 years or so. Um, and as far as gaming, uh, started uh, probably with Scrabble um, many, many years ago. And it's probably 
still, even though I play actual games now, Scrabble is one of my favorite games. Um, just love making words. Um, but, you know, got into the actual board game hobby through things like Pandemic um, and Carcassonne and stuff like that. Um, and then transitioning from uh, the design or sorry, the playing games to designing games. Um, it's actually mostly through you. I, I was listening to your podcast, designing my own games. Um, for the most part, I was designing games because I wanted to make cool graphic design stuff on my own. And so um, I use game design as an outlet for uh, making cool graphic design. Um, but I wanted to do something for someone else. And listening to your podcast, I decided to randomly email you and say, hey, do you want any free work? Uh, I want to do something for you. And I heard about some of your games you're working on. And kind of just through that, we've um, developed a good relationship. And um, now you're actually paying me not do, doing free free design work. Um, but yeah, just that. And then um, my own game design, I, I pretty much make my prototypes look beautiful um, because I enjoy design and art as an aspect of uh, board game design. Yeah, absolutely. It was such an interesting way that we kind of met. It's, you know, I've had lots of people reach out and say, hey, you know, I like what you're doing. I want to do something for you, you know, whether it's redesign your logo or help with your website, different things, right? And and sometimes I'll say, yeah, yeah, give it a shot. Or I'll look at their portfolio or whatever and say, okay, yeah, this is cool. Uh, but for the most part, though, those folks are just starting out. They're just trying to figure things out. They're just looking for a project to kind of get their feet wet, that kind of thing. And so it's not like professional quality. Uh, and so honestly, when I first started out, out with you, I sent you like a, a I think it was a, a little combo fighting, uh, almost like a street fighter card game that I was working on. And I was like, hey, you know, I need some uh, card templates for this if you want to just give it a shot and, and we'll kind of see where it goes. And you sent back like the most amazing card layouts. I, I was like, OK, I have to pay this man good money to do some really cool stuff that I'm working on. And so mm-hmm. uh, it was really awesome how we just kind of met. And, and I think it also says something to the effect of, you know, it's good to put yourself out there and at least say, hey. I'm going to give this a shot and we're going to see if it works uh, and to not just sit and wait for somebody to find you. But sometimes you have to go out there and make your own opportunities. So, you know, Henry Ford's the whole thing, the best way to predict the future is create it yourself. Right. And so I think it was a really cool uh, way for that. You reached out and that now we've been working on lots of different things, man. You've done the books that I you know have put out and got some more books coming down the road and uh, games and all this stuff. And so it's been a pleasure to work with you. You are a phenomenal graphic designer. Uh, but let's talk for a second about UX and UI. Like, Tell me the differences in kind of what you're doing now with UX and I guess user interface, user experience design versus graphic design. What are some of the key differences? Yeah, for sure. Um, so user experience uh, design and user interface design are very, they're similar, but very different. Um, user experience is more based on um, watching how people use your product um, and then creating an experience that'll be good for them. And then UI or user interface uh, design is more about creating um, a page that looks cool. And so it's like deciding which icons to use for your back arrow and which colors to use and how to present um, an image um, or your typography and stuff. And so when you combine UI and UX, you get a hopefully a really nice looking um, website um, and then, so I would say the difference between graphic design and both of those is primarily graphic design generally is um, focused on print um, for the most part. Um, and then you're not really creating something that someone interacts with as heavily as you would doing something for the web or I guess product design uses UX. Um, but I found that game design or designing graphic doing the graphic design for games, um, there's so many correlations between UX and UI design with game design um, because it's 
basically what you have is you have a user interface that the players are using to play your game. And so you have to think about the experience they're having, you know, where icons are, um, all of that, uh, while you're designing, doing the graphic design for the game. And so I think it's a really nice blend of, uh, UX, UI and graphic design all kind of comes together and, um, makes board game design, um, which I think is awesome. Yeah, it's one of the things I love about board game design in general. It has so many different nuances, so many different angles that you can travel down, and it all kind of comes together to create this really cool product in the end. All right, so let's talk about your your process. So when you're given a project, you know, whether it's uh, online, you know, some kind of digital uh, online website, different kind of thing, or a game or a book, what is your process for kind of figuring out how do you want this to look? How do you want to accomplish the vision that's kind of been set? Walk me through just the different stages of your personal process. Yeah, so my favorite thing to do right when I get a project of any kind is I, I look for inspiration. I, I find that um, seeing what other people have done, um, whether or not it's similar to the project you're working on, um, but just looking at stuff people have created that you find beautiful. Um, and usually I'll have a sense for the theme or kind of what I'm going for initially when I'm doing this kind of research. Um, so I'll, I'll scour the internet, um, you know, if I'm looking for typography, kind of just get different, um, a bunch of different fonts and play with those. Um, I'll look at board games that are similar, board games that I just think are beautiful, um, that will fit the aesthetic that we're going for, that I sort of am developing in my head as I'm working through components and um, the theme of the game. And then I kind of save those all in one place. Um, and right when I start, I usually, I'm just always looking at those, pulling little elements from one piece, little elements from another one, and just combining them um, together to make something unique uh, on my own, but uh, that uses inspiration from others that have already done it really well. Um, and then from there, I'll generally kind of, I really like to nail down the the overall feel of the game before I get too far into anything. So I'll kind of gather all that inspiration, do a couple revisions, a couple different versions of the game uh, to see if anything is is working well, and then hopefully share that with you um, and get your opinion and then kind of work together with you um, or the client to make sure that we're headed in the right direction. And then once we kind of get the the look and feel of the game or website or whatever, um, it kind of go full force after that. Um, and, you know, with, with UI and UX, wireframing is a big piece of um, what I do. And so when you take that into graphic design, you know, sometimes, especially with logos, I'll like sketch uh, on a piece of paper with game design, depending on what it is, I'll take out and sketch a little bit. And then you kind of flesh those out and turn them into like actual um, cards or components of the game. Yeah, gotcha. And so as a graphic designer, what are some things that are helpful to you like for a client to kind of as they're painting the picture of what they want? What are the things that are helpful in kind of helping helping you in your process as far as figuring out what the estate is going to look like? Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, just like I go and look for inspiration, that's usually one of the first things I ask my clients to do. I say, send me a bunch of stuff and just show me what you like and uh, or what you want your game to be like, because sometimes someone won't really like something, but they want their game to have a certain feel. Um, so I, I, I ask people to just send me as much as they can of things that they like. And then from that, I take that inspiration mixed with the stuff I've been thinking about, kind of combine that together. Um, but also, I, I like to know kind of, you know, if it's a family game, if it's a, you know, a hard sci-fi game. Um, knowing the theme and what they're going for in their age range will really change how I do the graphic design as well. So the typography might be more bubbly if it's um, for a, a family game 
versus, you know, blood dripping down typography for a horror game. So really knowing the age range, uh, the theme, and then gathering inspiration from the client themselves um, helps out uh, tremendously. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I think there's so many games out there. They're probably really good games, but they suffer from a, a, missed, a missed opportunity and expectation, right? They painted the expectation on the cover of the box and then the insides were different. The game was different than the art suggested, you know, for positive or, for, you know, better or for worse. So I think it's something really to think, think about on the front end. It's like, how do I make sure we're conveying the type of game this is, the weight of the game, the style of game, the length of game, all those things through the art and graphic design. I think it's a really big thing to, to just have on your mind as, as you're getting started. Now with Hunted, you know, it was something we wanted an, an action packed kind of game. You know, it's you versus the world. It's kind of this gritty, edgy thing. It's going to be uh, limited in the number of colors. You know, that's another interesting thing that, that, you know, is very different from, you know, most games you can use whatever colors you want. But this one, it's like, okay, we have two colors. We have three colors. How do we make this, you know, work and, and stand out? So when you were thinking through the process of coming up with the design, the graphic design for Hunted, what were you thinking? Um, yeah, so one of the things that um, we talked about early on before uh, we even found the artist was, we really wanted this. Um, I think the color thing was from the beginning, even before the artist. Um, yeah. But we we wanted this kind of dark. Well, I think in my mind, I wanted this really dark, um, kind of very simple. Um, I think that was for for hunted. That was my my tenant that I designed with. Is I, I tried to simplify as much as possible, um, and so it was like a simple aesthetic, but also dark and working with these separate colors. And that was, that was really what I based everything off of is I, so when I went for lo looking for inspiration, I, I looked at games that had really simple design. Um, I didn't want to, you know, do really intricate, uh, card frames or anything. I, I wanted the illustrations to speak for it because we wanted to create that, that mood. And, and I think with illustrations, um, that you, if you really showcase those, you can really create the mood, um, if your graphic design doesn't get in the way of that. Yeah, for sure. And another thing, the cards are all multi-use. And so there's a lot going on on the cards. And so I think simpler is going to be a lot better mm -hmm. because it, it keeps it from being cluttered. It keeps it from being overwhelming. And so, you know, there's a lot of iconography on the cards. Let's talk about that for a second. When you were coming up with the icons and trying to figure out, you know, where they were going to be placed on the cards, things like that, kind of walk me through your process for the, for the iconography. Yeah. Um, so I actually... And I think this is good for anybody in general, but you you had a really good prototype that you created that you were playtesting. Um, and I, I took your frame, but then what I did is I really thought about how people are using the cards and how can we simplify what you already had. And so I, I think initially I probably cut back a little more than I should have. Um, but then you said, no, that actually has to be on there. Um, but my, my, my main goal was to really cut everything away and only keep the essential pieces. Um, and so iconography, iconography played a huge role uh, in making it simple. So we needed clean, concise iconography in order to communicate what we were trying to do. Um, and so doing UI and UX uh, icons are actually a pretty big piece of it. And so I, I have a decent amount of experience finding icons that match um, random ideas. Uh, and so I... I think I just gave you some examples of stuff and um, I tried to create a style of icon um, that would work throughout the game and give it a little bit of visual interest. Um, so I, my, I really went with like a line art icon um, and then I kind of created these little circles that went around it, which also helped frame the icon. And we have empty circles when things aren't supposed to be where they're at. Um, so just incorporating that circle into the icon and making sure to give it a little bit of character to the icons. Um, and then keeping, I think one of the huge things that uh, a lot of 
novice graphic designers make the mistake of is when they're doing line icons or not line icons, um, they they mix and match things. And a lot of times you'll use, you know, a one point stroke on one icon and then a three point stroke on another. And so when, when you start mixing and matching weights of lines, uh, it actually starts looking less professional because it almost looks like you just grabbed random stuff and put it on uh, on a card. And so I think keeping your line weights uh, similar if you're using line icons or if you're not using line icons and you're using solid ones, try to maintain that consistency throughout. So stick with solid icons or stick with line icons and don't try to do too much mixing and matching of those. Yeah. Now, do you have any recommendations on different websites maybe to find icons? Yeah. I mean, I think Noun Project is probably the best one. Um, It's free for everyone. Uh, I think if you don't have a paid account, you need to attribute the uh, artist of the icon. But if you have a paid account, um, you can just use them for whatever you want. Uh, Gameicons.net, I think, is the URL for that one. That's always a a good one to go by. I think a lot of people use that probably more so for prototyping. um, But you can certainly certainly use those. Um, Or if you're a good artist, um, you know, you can illustrate your own icons, which I did a little work with uh, some of the icons um, with that we used for Hunted, um, where I would take a base uh, icon from gameicons.net, but then I would go and tweak it. I would make it look how I wanted it to look. I would, you know, delete some lines, add some stuff. Uh, One of the icons, which actually is not in the game anymore, was uh, the move icon. Um, I created a boot that looked exactly the same as the other boot, um, but it was like showing motion. And so uh, that was one that I just created by myself um, to match this style. Ultimately, it didn't work out. Uh, through playtesting, we found that it was too confusing having these icons that were too similar. Um, and so we took that icon out, even though it's probably one of my favorite icons in the game. Um, but you know, sometimes you got to do uh, what makes the most sense um, for the user experience. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it'll come back in one of the uh, future games mm-hmm. in the series. But you, know, you bring up a really good point. It's it's important to not only playtest the game and how it works and is it fun and, you know, is it broken or does it work? You know, it's also really important to playtest the iconography, the graphic design, you know, how, how do these things come together? And so one of the things we ran into as well in playtesting was the size of the icons. And so it turned out that they were a little bit small. And so what Give me some tips and tricks on on making sure your icons work well in testing, making sure the size is right, the fonts, we can get into that as well. Give me some kind of feedback on those. The best thing you can do is when, once you design something and you feel good about it, print it out on an actual piece of paper and look at it. Um, that That's really the only way you're going to see it. Um, if it's a giant map, you know, you can print a section of the map um, where you have typography on there. And um, But you need you need it to be in front of you printed it's really hard to see uh, the size of things on a computer screen. Um, so I think that's the most important thing to do. And once you are f- decent at graphic design and have done number of projects, you kind of get a sense for the sizing you can get away with. Generally, you don't want to go below an eight point font, but a lot of people will just initially start with a 12 point font just because that's like kind of the base that opens up whenever you uh, put a font on a program. Um, but I found that 12-point font's actually kind of big um, when it's printed. So I, I generally go down a little bit from 12, um, but it's all dependent on the, the font you choose. Some fonts are bigger, some are smaller. So really the only way to figure it out is design some stuff, print it out, and look at it uh, on a printed piece of paper. 
Yeah, definitely. Now, one of my favorite things about the cards that you've designed is how intuitive they are. And, and you know, the iconography, everything makes sense. And you, you created this little system of arrows kind of pointing to the different sections. That way, you know, if I use this card for this icon, then that opens up, you know, kind of sends the arrow for this other card and things like that. So tell me about how you kind of came up with that idea. And, and let's just talk just kind of bigger picture. How do you make things intuitive so that the graphic design just makes sense? Yeah, in terms of what we did on Hunted, that was honestly a, a mistake. Um, I Maybe not a mistake. It was reworking everything I did to give it character. And so, like I said, we started out being really simple. And it's to design something simple is actually way harder than to design something that's intricate um, because you have so much eye candy when you, design, you throw everything in. Um, but when it's simple, it's all scaled back and it can look really amateur if you go for the simple design and don't pull it off perfectly. And so what I was trying to do is I was trying to come up with some visual interest um, for the cards to make them look better. And I, I, you know, I was playing around with these frames and um, I started putting some circles on the frames and then ended up, oh, well, maybe I could do an arrow down here. And then I kind of thought about how the game plays and I said, oh, yeah, that actually does connect with that. And so we can kind of use these borders as indicators of how the card's actually going to work. So it's, it's sort of a happy, happy accident um, with that. I would say in general, for making sh something um, graphic design usable and intuitive, really it comes down to that the UX thinking. Think about how a player is going to be holding your card or where it's going to sit on the table. You know, for example, if you're fanning out a card, you usually want um, the icons in the upper right corner if, you know, people are using the hand of cards that they're keeping secret um, because they don't have to look at each individual card. And so just thinking about how the player is going to be interacting with the components, I think is usually a really good way um, to make sure that it, it stays intuitive and print it out, play it and see if it feels good to you. Uh, one of the other things is, uh, you know, there's a, a, a thing called chunking, which basically it's usually related to typography and big blocks of text on the internet, but you want to chunk out your content. So, you know, the stuff about hunted is in one section that's clearly distinct and then you know, the stuff about Final Flick Tears in another section that's really distinct. And I use that concept with board game design where I'm kind of chunking out the content and putting things that make sense together in the same area and things that aren't together in different areas. And so really just um, making sure that when you're looking at something, wherever it's at, it, it kind of connects with the thing that it's next to, if possible. I know a lot of times that's not possible, but chunking out that, that content and um, just getting it in uh, where it makes the most sense is really, really important as well. Yeah, for sure. Now, one thing I love about great graphic design is that it can take art that maybe is not the best art, but you have good art, but it can turn that good art into great art. It's just the way you, you kind of lay things out and the, and the way the uh, colors get, and maybe some filters and different things like that. And I think this is definitely the case with Final Frontier, where that art is good. You know, I was really happy with it, uh, but it's not, you know, next level it's not fantasy flight or anything like that it's good art but it's not great but the graphic design that you did for that game really made that art stand out made it pop it made it just look maybe better than it originally was and so how do you do that as a graphic designer how do you really just come alongside the art and make it pop make it come off the table so to speak where it stands out maybe more than it would have yeah with, with final Frontier, it was interesting because uh we had these really cool characters but we didn't none of them were like uh, there was no backgrounds or kind of shadows. So they, whenever I put them on something, they just sort of looked looked flat, you know, like they, they weren't connected to anything. And so my goal was I tried to do this really cool space nebulas that matched faction colors. 
Um, and then I used a lot of um, gradients and just really pulling in textures into Final Frontier uh, that complemented the art. So my a lot of my ideas were like, I want to make it look like it's a screen. Uh, so a lot of stuff has little lines on it. Um, so it looks like sort of an old television screen. And so that's one way you can do it is make your graphic design look like art. Um, it's pretty hard to do that. Um, I, I struggled a bit on Final Frontier because it's not my strong suit. I'm like I said, I tend to skew towards simplicity. And so doing something with all these textures and uh, lighting effects and all that, that was it was definitely a learning experience for me. But it, overall, it turned out amazing. Uh, I'm really happy with it. But it was really with that that scenario is trying to figure out how I can make the art look dynamic because um, we didn't have you know, the best art we could have, like if, if he, if the artist had given us, um, you know, a picture of the captain uh, in a, in a room, I think that would have dramatically changed how I created the cards uh, because I would have focused it more on the illustration than on the surrounding graphic design. Um, Some other tips just in general for uh, making illustrations pop, I think using contrasting colors. So if you have like a muted illustration, putting it on, you know, a ivory background is probably going to make it feel like just kind of a mess. But if you put it on like a crisp white background or a random color, um, that's always a good way to do it. So making sure that your illustration contrasts really well with whatever um, it's around it. Another thing is using textures in your backgrounds. Um, So if you had, like I did a cell sheet for a comic book game and I kind of used crinkled paper to make it look like it was, you know, a bit of a, comic book that's you know seen a little bit of wear so putting some texture in the backgrounds you know maybe some ink splots so kind of just using textures as a way uh that that really helps um make the image pop and feel a little more dynamic Uh, and then one of the other things that i think is a really easy uh thing to do is using some masks uh to make your illustration um go in front of certain areas of like your um the card frame and so i did this in hunted where a lot of the cards pieces of the alien's head will be popping over uh, the frame of the card. And it sort of just makes it look like it's it's almost 3D. It, it tricks your eye into thinking, you know, there's uh, some depth in the picture, even though there really isn't. Um, so I find uh, that's a really easy way to uh, create a dynamic card. Yeah, for sure. And I love what you've done with the hunted cards and kind of how everything's looking. And now with that game, it's a little bit easier maybe because the art is a little bit higher quality, uh, mm-hmm. you know, went out there and, and spending spending more money, you get what you pay for, <laughs> spending more money on the art. And hopefully it's made your your job a little bit easier. But I really love what you've done as far as just kind of making the cards. It, it really does seem like that alien's coming to get you. It really mm-hmm. does seem like that terrorist is trying to, to gun you down, you know, just kind of the way everything's laid out. And so you, you've done a phenomenal job on, on both games, but I'm really excited with the way a hunted is turning out any other design challenges you ran into with hunted anything else you kind of were like man i didn't i didn't think about that or we had kind of switch things up or change things along the way i mean i think working with the artist uh that that sort of changed things because i think initially we thought we were like we were really looking for kind of this really realistic scary aliens and uh kind of more realistic artwork uh, and then you happen to find Jorge and you said, do you think this is going to work? I said, yeah, man, that is amazing. I love his stuff. And I think for me, his the way he illustrates is really in line with how I like to design. Um, but it was it kind of changed our my initial thought into how the game is going to look. And so I really I had to kind of change some of the stuff I was doing to make sure that we we worked with a limited color palette. 
Um, so everything just really made sense in the card and worked with the illustrations. Um, so that was that was one of the things that kind of came up. Um, I think it was a great decision, and I'm, I'm just in love with uh, his artwork. And then I think one of the other things that we ran into was the location cards. I guess this wasn't really a mistake or uh, something that was hard, but a happy um, accident that we we figured out was we wanted a way to differentiate the main event deck and the location deck. And um, I think you had the idea of like, let's actually flip it horizontal. And just by changing the ratio of the card actually made those two decks uh, separate. And I think, I think that was a really cool um, thing that we, we just ran into um, and decided and it really helps with the experience of the game because you quickly know which deck is which um, just because the ratio of the card. Yeah, and that really gets back into the playtesting, playtesting your graphic design, playtesting how the way you know cards are laid out. Because as I was testing it just by myself, I realized it's like sometimes it's hard to find location cards. Like sometimes they get mixed in with the others, and it's like, well, where where is this other card? And so just by turning it horizontal made it so easy to find. And so I think just working through the setup of a game and making graphic design just be so intuitive or so easy for a person to set a game up on a, on a board or on a table, or whatever. If you can add little details, little icons to your board or to your play mat, or whatever, just kind of make the setup of a game easier. I think you're, you have a better chance of your game getting played and that's just a graphic design thing. Just a changing things here and there, making some tweaks. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, Drew, man, really appreciate you coming on the show. Appreciate you uh, sharing these ideas. Again, I look forward to having you back on down the road for a, a much longer conversation about graphic design. There's so many things we can go into. Uh, with this. It's, it's such a deeper topic than a lot of people realize. Uh, there's a lot more to it than just getting some icons, throwing them on a card and, and having a nice day. Like, there's so much to it. So I look forward to having you on again down the road. And again, it's been great to work with you. You're a phenomenal, phenomenal graphic designer. Really glad that we uh, crossed paths and that we get to continue to work on these projects together. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Gabe. I uh, really enjoyed being on the show and I look forward to uh, talking about graphic design. I, it's something I love to do and I love to talk about. So this has been great. Awesome. All right, so now I'm with the artist slash illustrator for the game Hunted, Mr. Jorge Velas. Jorge, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. How are you doing, Gabe? Doing great, sir. Really glad you could you could be on. Just kind of talk through the different choices that you made with the art for the game and, and mm-hmm. you know, maybe some art challenges you ran into and things like that. But also just talk about art in general as it relates to board games and card games. But before we get into that, let's do a quick bio. Who are you? How'd you get into art and illustration? And then how'd you get into doing art for games? So I am Jorge Velas, as you said earlier. <laughs> um, I am an illustrator based in Georgia right now. I am from Puerto Rico originally. Uh, been living here in the U.S. for 10 years now. And used to work at a studio. Now I am full-time freelance, just working from home, doing whatever comes my way. And uh, yeah, so I started drawing I, I want to say I started drawing like very early on but I didn't take it seriously until I got in the internet and started posting online where I started like getting feedback from people outside of like my friends and family and started kind of getting that inspiration of like oh wow like I can show other people my work this means I gotta take it seriously now um, that's kind of where it started and I want to say that's like 2006 until now yeah when I really started pursuing a career for myself uh, as, as like my own identity instead of um, basically working for someone else, which was uh, what the studio life was like. 
Yeah, very cool. And now the studio you worked for, they, they do shows like Archer and whatnot, right? Yeah, uh, the studio I used to work for is Floyd County Productions. They are they are best known for Archer, the FX adult comedy show. It is still running. It's uh, 11 seasons strong. Uh, and I, yeah, my last season there was season 10. And I've been there for eight years. And I want to, like, it's been ups and downs, but I am, like, I'm grateful for the time I spent there. Very cool. Now, what did you do on the show? I was an illustrator. I, I started out as an illustrator. What I did was basically draw the characters assigned to me, uh, assigned to the team in general. Uh, anything from like poses, uh, short sequences, props, anything that was going to be animated was had to be illustrated first in, uh, in a Adobe Illustrator and then passed on to the animation team. So basically we would like structure the characters as kind of paper puppets and prepare them for like any scene or sequence they're going to be a part of. And from there I went to senior illustrator, which was um, just added responsibilities on top of illustration. I would train new hires. I would um, assist with notes on episode viewings. And I would also do like some promo stuff too on the side. Very cool. So what's been the biggest change of going from working for a studio to now freelancing and doing all sorts of other projects? Oh boy. Like a lot of people like the idea of working from home and being your own boss, but that is the hardest part is like holding yourself responsible and accountable for like your schedule and your time. And, you know, even though you are like your desk is in your house, you still have to wake up at a good time. You still have to like go to sleep. Uh, basically like structure your life as though you are working in someone else's studio, even if it is your house and being your own boss is, is it sounds good on paper, but it is basically telling yourself, no, you can't, you can't take a break. Now you already did take a break. (laughs) Um, And yeah, like managing your own tasks and your schedule is like a lot of paperwork a lot of documentation. Oh boy, like keeping track of this stuff. I've I've decided my memory is not good enough anymore, so I got to write everything down, and that's been one of the challenges too. <laughs> and I mean, it comes with its advantages too. Like I I think having like I'm an introvert naturally, so like I like being alone. I like the solitude. I I feed off of that energy. So that's the one thing I've liked the most about working alone is that I'm I'm like I can focus easier. I, I can like work on work, like be selective about the projects I work in, um, have a lot more creative control with what I do and basically just set my own work environment. Yeah. Very cool. Now you and I met just kind of by happenstance. I got asked to speak on a panel at the Southern fried gaming convention, Oh yeah, which is about as as country as you can name a convention, I think. <laughs> and uh, it was kind of a mixture of video games and board games. And so yeah. I remember you were on the board game side. You had your little booth set up. You're selling art prints and everything like that. And I was just walking around. I, I love going to the art side of any convention and just checking things out, right? And I'm always getting business cards for potential you know, projects down the road. And if somebody has a really good aesthetic that maybe I'm not working on right now, it's like, okay, you wouldn't fit now, but maybe one day down the road. And as soon as I walked by your booth, I thought, this this might be the answer because I was looking for an artist. I was looking no for somebody who's going to create the vibe. Yeah, create the vibe, the mood that I was going for. You know, I was initially I was thinking I wanted something really realistic, really like uh, edgy and, and kind of like it mm-hmm. looks like it could be real. But as soon as I saw your art, 
I was like, no, no, here's a better idea. Here's a much cooler way to do it. And because I wanted each game to stand out in yeah. the series, I wanted each game to kind of have a different color scheme and, you know, palette and things like that. And I thought, here's the way to do it because the art you had was just phenomenal, but the way you drew characters, but you had a lot of art that you only used one color, right? For You just used one color in different shades and you still made the art just pop off of the page. Mm-hmm. And so it was really cool to cross paths and work with you. And I'm really glad it worked out for us to be able to work together. Well, walk me through your process though, right? You have a guy like me that meets you, takes a business card and says, Hey, we, I want to work with you. Then what's the next stage? Like, tell, tell me about your process of figuring out like the research and kind of going back and forth with the client and things like that as you try to create the art that they're commissioning you to do. Yeah. So in your case where you just found me, like we basically follow up uh, via email and I gather as much information as I can, um, set up a contract for payment schedule and go from there. Basically like gather like reference and as much information as I can from the client and let them basically tell me what they want. Cause, uh, something I, I live by is like, if I'm, when I do client work, like I do, I do allow myself to give creative input, but in the end, final word is like final word is theirs. So I just want, I just want to make sure that like that is, is, is sorted out as clearly as we can before moving forward. And then after that, uh, send in some sketches, like work on concept and uh, drafting, show them off and be like, hey, is this cool? Is this what you want? This is great. Uh, I like th- I like this, but you might like that. And like, you know, just make sure we got, like we, when we, with, we did with uh, with Hunted, like I would send you like different drafts for like certain characters. Be like, is this one good? Is this one, like, which one do you like best? And just move from there. Basically making sure, <laughs> basically making sure that like we're good <laughs> is is kind of like the simplest way I can put it. Yeah, gotcha. And so kind of looking bigger picture, if somebody wants to work with an artist, work with an illustrator, what are some things they can do as far as maybe sending in different drawings, different ideas, writing out and maybe paragraph form, bullet points, whatever, what they're looking for? What helps you the most as an artist when really trying to figure out that client's vision for the art? I like... I like working with clients that come in knowing what they want. And this is what, what helps me the most is when people send me references and like, uh, like, okay, so I was thinking something like this. And then that gives me a clear idea of where they want to go with it. Uh, I'm like, I like drawing, but character design is not my forte. (laughs) Uh, So I, I struggle a bit when people say like, do whatever you want. And, and a lot of people think a lot of clients think that's like the dream job is like, do, do whatever you want. But to me, it's like, Oh no, that's so many things. I want everything. I can't, I don't know which one to go with. Uh, so I like, I like the uh, working with people who come in asking for exactly what they want to see and giving me reference to, where it is they want to go so that the, the further we move, the, the more clear the vision becomes uh, for both me and the, and the person I'm working with. Yeah. It sounds like this situation is, is one of those scenarios where more is more. A lot of times people say less is more, but in this case, more is more and more is better as far yeah. as like direction and yeah. things like that. In case of like anything that's pre-production, more is more. Gotcha. Now, as I mentioned just a second ago, a lot of your art is monochromatic. You know, you'll take blue and you'll use all sorts of different shades in the art to kind of make this bigger image. First of all, why did you start doing that? Like what made you want to do just monochromatic stuff? 
And then how in the world do you make it happen? How do you make it look so good? So it started with when I started getting into shirt design, I realized that a lot of uh, screen printing is best done with as few colors as possible. And this kind of forced me into a creative process where I had to figure out, well, what can I do with this many colors, right? So I went back and drew inspiration from back when I did pixel art for like NES style games, Nintendo Entertainment System, where it was, um, where a lot of their, the color palettes were limited just by the, uh, just by the, the the capacity of the hardware and kind of drew inspiration from that and saw like how to work around the limitations, people would just use less colors and then figure out, well, what else can I do with this, with these two tones? And then like kind of, I went from there and, and said, okay, well, I can apply these same principles to like shirt design where I can only use four, like most shirt designs use four to three colors uh, for screen printing. And it was like, it started becoming fun because every time I drew, I had to, it's like a puzzle. I have to figure out, okay, well, I can use this for skin tone, but the shading I use for this can also be used for like the hair or stuff like this, you know, like figuring out, figuring out that like each element in this drawing can be the same color to me is the most fun part of using a limited palette. And the end result like people, I found that also people were impressed by the end result. Like, oh, I didn't know you could do this. I'd like, how did you figure this out? Like, I always get this question and it's like, I try to answer it as best I can. But to me, it's like a gamified process. So it's really hard for me to explain because I'm not really thinking about it. So hopefully, like how what I describe right now was enough to like put light on that process. Yeah, for sure. And it's something I've run into just with people playtesting the game and people who hadn't, you know, seen it, hadn't seen any of your art before. A lot of them had said, wow, I've never seen a game that looks like this. You know, it's it definitely cool. stands out because a lot of people, you know, they, they don't illustrate or they don't do art with this method. You know, they want to use all the colors, which is great. You know, that works out really, really well, but it makes it, it stand apart. So it sets itself apart because it is so different. But at the same time, it looks so good, you know, in, in, in Kobayashi Tower. The game is blue. The whole thing is blue and black. And that's it. And it's like, well, how in the world is that going to work? If like you were just to write that out on paper, you say, okay, <laughs> this game is only blue and black. It's like, well, how? No, it's not possible. It's not going to look good. But yet it, it looks really, really good. But then for the yeah. Alien game, I want to ask you about this. So the original aesthetic, the, the, the color was red. I want it to be, you know, have mm-hmm. this dark red tone to it. And then you use different shades and whatnot. And we, we didn't really talk much about it. I just told you, hey, I want it to be red. And then you came back with art that was red and yellow. And initially I was like, well, that's not exactly what we we're going for. And so I was like, well, can you send it to me in, in red and shades of red? And so it came back with kind of red and different pinks and things like that. And it's like, wow, the red and yellow looks way better. <laughs> it looks way better in, in kind of conveying the mood and things like that. So first of all, why yellow? Like, what were you thinking as far as that kind of thing goes? And like, walk me through the, the process for that particular game. So when I, when I work with a limited red palette, I like to use yellow as like the highlight because it's fiery. It's like, it's, it's the way I shade fire when I'm using limited palette. And I just think those two colors work so well together. So when, when we spoke about like uh, initially planning for the, the mining colony uh, game and concept, you sent me my empire strikes back fan art as reference is like, okay, so this is the kind of limited palette that I want. And, Going back to um, 
to reference and like pre-production, that was really helpful for me because I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to use the same color palette I use for this, the Darth Vader's lightsaber where it's like the highlight is yellow. So it has like a fire element to it. And I thought that would work great because it would let me differentiate like the different part of the aliens, like, uh, like features. So their arms have like sex segments that are yellow instead of red. So you can like differentiate between them. And it also makes the design stand out a little more where, you know, it's, it's like a, it's like something that I felt would work not just in a visual sense, but in a design aspect, uh, having, having a color to like separate elements is really helpful when you're working with few colors. Cause it helps the eye like see, Oh, this is a thing. This is a thing. Yeah, for sure. And what I love about the red and the yellow, and especially as we compared kind of the red and the pinks and different things, you know, kind of looking at, okay, which direction do we want to take? The red and yellow created this really ominous feeling, right? You really kind of feel like you are in this corridor. The power is out. Only the security lights are working. You can't see hardly anything. And you know there's some aliens around here that want to eat your face off, right? <laughs> and the red and yellow really created that vibe in a way that the red and pinks didn't. And so let's talk about that for a second. How do you create cool. mood? How do you create tone? Especially when you're only using a few colors, how do you create mm-hmm. the, the kind of atmosphere for the for the games? I I want to say it's the hard shadows, like using not just the red and yellow, but like heavy, heavy shades of black where you can't see beyond this point. And that kind of creates a sense of depth and a sense of mystery, but in a sense of like scary kind of mystery, like a like with the one of the alien cards I, I drew where it's just a single one reaching out for you, the entire background is black and he's just like emerging from the shadows. And that kind of creates that like, oh crap, here he comes, like feel of it. Like maybe implying that earlier you didn't see where that alien was coming from. So I feel like the harder shading helps with creating that atmosphere and then just using highlights sparingly for like the eyes and the teeth to like bring attention to the more like threatening or like, Oh crap, you can bite me. You can bite my face off or you can claw my face off <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah. Gotcha. Now with these games, we're working uh, from some different inspirations, you know, different pop culture inspirations. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I was inspired by some different things in anime and movies and things like that. But okay. anytime you're, you're doing that, you gotta be careful. You want to walk the line of, of not, you know, copying or anything like that. And so what, tell me about kind of, the way you you created something that kind of had some references, right? Had some homage, so to speak, mm-hmm. but then also creating something brand new out of that. Help me, help me understand that process. Yeah, so this is this is probably the most entertaining challenge I find with this project is that I want I want this to be as I, I want this to be as unique as possible while still channeling the inspiration. So what I will do is I look up very like I look up all sorts of references, not just from not just from what we're paying homage to, but like from different other sources to just add that level of kind of like a curveball to like what this design is supposed to be and what it's channeling. And this actually gives me a lot of freedom in working with designs, which I think is probably what I find the most entertaining about it because uh, sometimes working heavily from reference means you have to have very specific details and aspects of something down to like the specifics of it. 
where it can be a little tedious just to get like the accurate portrayal of something. Whereas in this case, I can I can just go my way and be like, okay, well, as long as it as long as it's channeling this feature, I you know it's fine. I can just go crazy with it. And this is this is like the this is why the drafting process in this case is entertaining because I'm basically kind of creating what I want as long as it's based on this. So with with that in mind, it you know it it it's a little more freeing. It's a little more um, expressive in its form. The only disadvantage from this now, though, is that sometimes I'll design something and then not think of the long term uh, <laughs> the long term consequences of that. So, like for one, of, so for the alien design, uh, I kind of just like, oh, he's gonna have this and he's gonna have that. And he's gonna look cool, but then I realize, oh wait, I have to draw this again. <laughs> and I have to make sure that it's consistent and I didn't think of this and <laughs> that's um also comes with a set of challenges I think it's still like I don't know to me like the challenge is the fun part of drawing so even with that said it's still it's still what I like to do in this case yeah for sure and I think you've done a great job in channeling the different inspirations that we were looking at I uh, think. and I and I think when people look at the art they're going to get the ideas they're going to get the different concepts of where you know we're drawing inspiration from but at the same time it's something totally brand new it's something totally unique with the way the characters are are drawn different features about them the kind of uh, features about their just their overall aesthetics are very very different and so i think people will look at and go okay i think this is kind of a cool thing but at the same time this is something it's a brand new world it's a brand new set of aliens brand new set of terrorists you know that that hasn't shown up in any other work before and so i think you've done a great job in, in bringing that out now you've drawn different types of scenes and you've drawn different items and weapons, things like that. Tell me about your process when you're working on a gun or grenade or a health pack or whatever versus you're drawing, you know, a terrorist trying to shoot you. Tell me the the difference in kind of your art process. Yeah. So things like weaponry, especially like real life weapons, those are heavily referenced. And those are, um, I, I actually going back to my time and working for Archer at Floyd County, I do one of the things I'm grateful for is that we drew a lot of weapons and we drew a lot of guns and that helped me understand how to like go forward with that. So with, with that in mind, it's, it's something I've done already. So it's, it's a pretty streamlined process now with the, with things like the, the characters, like the terrorists and like um, the main terrorist villain character, those are more, those are more just like, okay, this guy's going to look like this. This one's going to have sunglasses. This one's going to have like shadows covering his eyes. And on the fly, basically, as long as they do, they look different. Uh, I'm cool with it, which is where that, that there's more creative uh, input in that. And I was, I was actually kind of uh, entertained. One of the notes I got back from you was, uh, yeah, so let's try to make like each character different. Except for this guy. This guy I want, like, maybe we can see this guy again. He's like a recurring villain. It'll be fun. And then because of that, now you, now I'm creating this, like, story in my head when, when drawing these, these, uh, these villains. It's like, oh, yeah, he came back. He didn't actually, like, you didn't actually defeat him. <laughs> he's, uh, he's still walking around and stuff. And I guess, um, I guess that makes the, like, that, that there's a big difference between drawing, um, items and weaponry versus characters because they're just different approaches to 
um, illustration. All right, awesome. And did you run into any art challenges or illustration challenges when putting together the art for maybe the weapons or items or different scenes or anything for the game? Oh, yeah. So backgrounds, especially sci- the sci-fi backgrounds, there's a lot of geometry going on. Um, I tend to I tend to like drawing more organic backgrounds because they don't require as much. Uh, you, you can eyeball most of it. But with things like hallways and corridors, that was a that was an involved process where it's like, oh, these lines aren't like lining up correctly. Oh, these pipes need to all be at the same angle. And that part, like figuring everything out and just making it look good so that like, like nothing immediately jumps at you as like, oh, wait, why is this lopsided? Why is this facing that way? That was probably the biggest challenge with uh, designing these cards specifically. Awesome. Well, you did a great job. It, it all came out looking really, really <laughs> good. I'm, yeah, I'm excited for uh, the Kickstarter to wrap up, and that way we can get to the, the next stage of art, you know, all the other locations mm-hmm. and items and weapons, things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm excited yep. for what you're going to come up with. Well, Jorge, this has been great. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts on art or illustration? Like anything you would say to somebody out there who's maybe wanting to work with an artist? Like what would be your advice to them? Advice for someone working with an artist would be always keep a line of communication open, always be clear, always... Like, never be afraid to ask for something. Never be afraid to, like, to give input, to give feedback. In the end, it's it's in the best interest of the client and the artist to just come out with a result that we're both happy with. Uh, as an artist, I think it's important to learn. It's important to see feedback and critique as, like, a, the process moving forward, just fleshing itself out. Uh, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be something you take personally. It doesn't have to be something you, you like dread and, and, oh no, I can't, I, um, I, I was working with someone earlier that apologized to me at the end saying like, I hope I'm not being a client from hell. And I told, I told him like, you, all you did was give me one round of notes, dude. You're fine. Like, <laughs> this is what I do. This is my job. Like, it's fine. And so, yeah, it, it's all, it's all about like maintaining a, a positive relationship um through communication and just being just being as clear as you can as possible definitely or hey again man really appreciate you coming on the show appreciate you working on the game it's been fun to kind of see this whole thing come together all Mm -hmm. the way from ideas and notes and and then turned into sketches and then line art and then the color being added to it it's been really cool just to kind of see it uh, turn into something special and so i'm I'm looking forward to continue to work with you uh, on these games and wrapping them up and then also some other cool projects down the road but uh, again thanks for your time and thanks for coming on the show yeah uh thank you i mean i've some of my best stuff is coming out of this project i I gotta say like i was telling my wife yesterday like this is a portfolio piece right here like uh so yeah i'm i I definitely am looking forward to seeing where this goes and, and any future projects we work on together uh it's been fun for sure awesome all right, so that about wraps things up. Really appreciate you listening. Hopefully this was a, an interesting episode to you. Hopefully you got some good things out of it from different angles, you know, listening here from different perspectives. And hopefully my design journey with this game has influenced and helped you in, in your own design journey with the games that you're working on. And again, if this game sounds interesting to you, check it out. It's on Kickstarter through the first week of November. And thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of the Board Game Design Lab community. You're awesome. Can't wait to see the games that you're working on right now. Can't wait to see them come to life so good luck with those games and good luck with everything else you got going on right now thanks for listening 
Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?